quarter to three, not really games podcast for October 23rd, 2016. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Negligee, a new visual novel available on Steam. <laughs> oh, my God. That popped up on my Steam homepage today, too. Uh, hi, I'm Chris Hornbostel, and my game of the week is not Hide and Shriek. Oh, boy. Or yeah. Five Nights at Freddy's or any of those dumb games. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying Negligee popped up, quote, on your homepage. <laughs> Don't you mean your wish list, Hornbostel? <laughs> yeah, so visual novels. I'm not into I, – I actually tried a couple of visual novels, uh, and we're mentioning this because we just finished a week of book recommendations. Uh, so there have been some visual novels, Hornbostel, that I tried. There was one based on Cinderella. There was a shipwrecked on another planet thing. I do not get the appeal of visual novels. Yeah, I'm not sure I do either. I guess it's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure thing, which is fine. But then they always – I don't know. It's like they, they get people who really aren't very good at writing to, exactly. or at least at plotting to yeah. do these. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, but what we're going to – It's like – what? Yeah, well, no, well, go ahead. Well, what we're going to talk about this week are people who are good at plotting and writing, uh, people who aren't doing visual yeah. novels, probably for a reason. Uh, so we just finished a, <laughs> a week of these book recommendations, uh, or in some cases, short story recommendations. Uh, Chris Hornbossel, so on Friday we did our favorites. I need to take you to task for once again going to the same well. You chose, what was it, like last week for TV, it wasn't your Friday favorites, but you chose Gravity Falls, a children's show. For your right. Friday favorites this week, I think you chose, was it the Goosebumps series? Yeah, it was. I, I chose the Goose. <laughs> nope, I chose Rick Yancey's Monstromologist series, uh, which is, for some reason, that I will never figure out in the young adult section uh, at your local bookseller. And it is absolutely not a young adult series of books in any way, shape, or form. It is telling that the first two letters of Rick Yancey's last name. Y-A. That's true. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Oh, I, like I instead, put, of, they meant to put it in the, like, alphabetical by author. It accidentally went into young adults. Someone misread Y-A. <laughs> yeah, good call. <laughs> well, it's it's almost like, I, and I put this in when I was recommending it, it's almost like this is kind of like a side project that his publisher lets him do. Like, okay, I'll tell you what, you keep cranking out the the hits that we can sell, you know, that we can license into movies and whatnot, and we'll let you do your weird little monster books that, and, you know, it's like there's nobody paying attention. They're just, like, rubber stamping them and sending them into the same genre, even though it's not really a very good fit. Well, now, to be fair to Rick Yancey, who is certainly among your favorite horror writers, uh, this movie that he's known for, Fifth Fleet, no, shoot, Fifth, uh, Fifth Wave. Uh, Fifth Wave. Fifth Wave is a horrible movie. I've actually seen it, but maybe it's not a horrible book. Like, plenty of books get That's adapted. True. So we shouldn't give Yancey too much grief for the movie that was adapted from his book. Maybe his book is fine. Um, but yeah, the movie is terrible, and unfortunately, that's how I know who Rick Yancey is <laughs> until you brought up this Monstromologist series. Now, I have a question. You said the second book is called, like, Curse of the Wendigo, right? Yes. But it's about vampires? Because a vampire, a Wendigo is not a vampire. 
Right. It is not. But and it all it gets very convoluted because the one of the protagonists, the Dr. Worthrop in all four of the books, uh, kind of the running gag in the second book is him saying over and over again, you know, insisting that he's the expert and that he can assure everyone that there's no such thing as vampires and what they're going after is something else, possibly a, just a regular human killer. And it may be, you know, something mythological like a Wendigo. Uh, and it turns out to be uh, – he turns out to be kind of wrong. Wait a minute. So in this universe, uh, these monstromologist uh, books are sort of – they're a shared universe, same characters, yeah. Uh, this character believes in Wendigos but not vampires? Like he's a guy who's in a world where a Wendigo exists. Right. But he, he refuses to believe vampires exist? He makes fun of people who believe in vampires and werewolves. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Now, the, you know, underground dwelling, you know, human human eating primates, those are real, but not vampires. And it's really kind of funny because in the second book, Bram Stoker shows up as a character and everybody in the book makes fun of him because he's like this rank opportunist who is basically trying to spin the story that uh, Dr. Worthrop is going through into it. Like he's trying, like, oh, he's just going to turn this into some nasty, stupid fiction novel. And it's just kind of this very funny sly wink to Bram Stoker's actual career. Right. No, no, I just, so the, when we did TV, I watched a series called Penny Dreadful and one of the characters played by, uh, they're twins, uh, Luke and Harry Treadaway. I forget which one, but one of them is played by one of the Treadaway boys, and he's a scientist. He's basically Dr. Frankenstein, so he revives the right. dead body, the Frankenstein's monster. And they'll periodically have him play the skeptic, where you know they're 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 dealing with demon women who have made a pact with Satan, and he'll say things like. There's no such thing as demons. That's not scientifically proven. And he's dealing – like he's in a world where there's werewolves and there's there's ghosts. And there's, <laughs> right. It's like they have to randomly make him a skeptic about something even though there's supernatural stuff going on right and left. And he's going to put his stake down on believing – not believing in one thing. So when this doctor fellow doesn't believe in vampires, I'm like, come on. Dude, your universe is full of supernatural things. Vampires are fine. <laughs> Why are you prejudiced against vampires? But I think the, the 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 thing that crosses both of those currents with uh, the Dr. Frankenstein in uh, Penny Dreadful and Dr. Warthrop in The Monstromologist is that both guys are into – they only believe the things that they can personally observe right. and test with a scientific method. And because you know neither one can test or has seen or has any evidence – I think it's I think it's actually kind of cool that they give they give them that scientific skepticism. I mean, throughout all four of the books, Dr. Worthrop is like, well, no, no, I'm actually a doctor of philosophy and aberrant uh, natural history. Right. And, you know, it's all presented as this very academic, uh, you know, this very academic background that he has. But it also basically takes him into being a monster hunter. Do you know what a cryptozoologist is? Yeah, yeah, they're the ones who – and that's kind of what he's like actually is 
he's like a cryptozoologist, but there's actual, you know, cryptozoids or whatever you want to call them to actually find in this book's universe. So, right. And I, I, a cryptozoologist, actually, the actual technical definition of a cryptozoologist, it's a wacko who wants to believe, who wants other people to think he's into science. There's no right, such thing right. as a cryptozoologist. Yeah, it's just anytime somebody calls himself a cryptozoologist, it's just someone who wishes he could be a scientist, but who's let go of all the tenets of scientific inquiry. Because <laughs> if you're going like, right. to chase Bigfoot and you think there's science to it, <laughs> exactly. no, sorry. You, you don't care. <laughs> To just substitute the word wacko anywhere you hear cryptozoologist. Uh, so yeah, I'm just tweaking this uh, this uh, protagonist in, in your books, and and also the fact that it, it's young adult. I I just have such uh, a prejudice against anything that could be aimed at a 12 year old. I feel is beneath me, and I shouldn't feel that way. Uh, plus, you've even pointed out these are not necessarily appropriate for the average 12 year old. So well, no, and what's really you know I don't want to spoil too much but there is you know each in the fourth book of the series he the yancey kind of jumps around his timeline and one of the themes he explores is how adults and i think it this probably was him pouring it out of himself is how you know as kids grow up and become adults how the role between a grown-up adult and an elderly parent figure or a parent figure who's becoming increasingly infirm, how that role changes and how that changes their perceptions for one another and their perceptions as other people see them and just kind of takes on those kind of themes about, you know, when you become, a, you know, when you enter your adulthood and as your adulthood progresses and you know, takes on that whole, you know, where always, you know, at some point you may be taking care of your parents or stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, what 12 year old is going to read that and connect with this in any way, shape or form? Right, right. right. <laughs> uh, and one... it also does not have a tidy ending either. So, yeah, it's not a happily ever after. It's not a bad ending. It's just not happily ever after by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, when it comes to throwing down labels like young adult, you mentioned that Robert Aikman uh, sort of eschews the the category horror in favor of stuff like strange stories. Uh, right. Do you believe in such a distinction? There's also uh, like weird fiction. You know, there are different terms that seem to be they they want to either shy away or create a subcategory under horror. Uh, whereas I believe horror should be a broad umbrella and people shouldn't be ashamed of it. And that was even my point with bringing up a Cormac McCarthy story, which has a very tenuous claim on horror, but I just thought some of it was horrifying and the little moments of it that were horror, I felt just really defined it in a separate way from some of his other historical stories, uh, Cormac McCarthy's. Uh, so I believe horror should be a really big umbrella and people like Aikman shouldn't be comfortable under horror. Right, right. Well, you know, I think the thing of it is, though, is that until it wasn't until both of our lifetimes when The Exorcist got big and, you know, that was based on a William Peter Blatty novel. And then you had Jaws by Peter Benchley. You know, that was a big novel and a big movie. And then Stephen King comes along. And I think before Stephen King and all of this in the 1970s, horror was really, really, 
you know, if you wrote horror stories, you were a pulp writer. Right. Even in like the 50s and 60s. And I think these guys were like, I'm, you know, I don't want to be, you know, thrown into, you know, I don't want to be classified as a pulp writer. I want to be classified as something, you know, as someone who isn't doing it. And nowadays, you know, we live in, you know, this age where I think, you know, Michael Chabon is one of the ah, – right. He's one of my favorite writers, and I think that by any measure, he's probably one of the best current fiction writers in the world. And he's like, give me genre fiction. I don't care. You can call it whatever you want. And he actively embraces it. Like, he's a huge Lovecraft fan and references Lovecraft in his books. Um, And so I love that now it is, you know, I think we can have a horror genre. And, you know, people like uh, Thomas Ligotti – uh, you know, the guy that you reviewed uh, and Laird Barron can sit in that genre and nobody thinks, well, that's a bad writer. It's also like we're, it, it is a generational thing, too, in that, you know, like Walking Dead is the mainstreaming of like weird zombie horror fiction. And there's right. nobody like everybody knows. And, and it's the same with fantasy, the Lord of the Rings movies, Game of Thrones. Like fantasy isn't in the shadows either. Uh, all, all of these previously genre things. Guys like us, I think, who were kids with this stuff grow up, and we're fine with it. Uh, and I think that's why we're seeing that kind of thing. It's no longer a, it's no right. longer a weird pulp subgenre, is it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I and so I think, but I do think that that's what Aikman was going for with calling his stories strange stories, is that he was trying to get out of that, you know, out of that pulp ghetto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also like what. Like the definition of horror too is like, anytime somebody tells me something isn't horror, I kind of like like horror can be so broad. Like I, uh, I I saw recently a movie called Desierto just about uh, a white supremacist gunning down uh, Mexican immigrants, right? Like he's frustrated about uh, immigration, so he takes a rifle and he goes out and he murders Mexican immigrants trying to cross the border. Uh, like I feel like that could that should be horror, you know. It's classified. Yeah, as that's horrific. Exactly, like it's horrific. It's a terrible thing if it taps into some sort of anxiety that everyone can share. I believe it's horror. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely a proponent of big tent horror. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I and honestly, I think the book that I talked about on Monday uh, by a guy named Paul Tremblay kind of fits into that because he leaves it wide open throughout the entire book for you as the reader to decide whether the sister who is possessed is possessed or if she's faking it, if it's a hoax or if it's just mental illness. And I love that he finally, you know, says, okay, now you don't get to consider this as an academic uh, thing as a reader. I want you to, I'm gonna. He brings your emotions to bear on that question in the way that the book ends, and I love the way he does that. And I think he might be my favorite discovery from doing this because this was something that somebody on the forums recommended to me, and I just, I'm, I'm all in on Paul Tremblay's career. He, uh, I just recently got Laird Barron's recent collection of short stories called Swift to Chase. Uh, the intro is by Paul Tremblay. Who, until you brought him up, I had no idea who that was. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of crossover well, there. And what reminds me, what you wrote about Laird Barron, about having the eye patch and running the Iditarod. And, you know, he's been in fights. He's probably won fights. And that kind of 
colors your perception, whether you can help it or not, that creates a sort of mindset when you sit down with the Laird Baron short story, right? And clearly that comes out in uh, uh, the uh, the Imago sequence that you were uh, discussing uh, in your thing. And with Paul Tremblay, I was like, you know what? You know, I finished the book and I was like, I want to know a little bit more about him. And I found out that he's got a brand new book out and it's called uh, Disappearance at Devil's Rock. And on his website, he mentions that his two big influences or his big influence is Picnic at Hanging Rock, oh. which is a movie I love. And then he's in this like a paragraph later, he says, my favorite horror movie is like Mungo. And I'm like, OK, you had me at hello. You know, <laughs> you know, that's like finding out that, you know. Wow, I I I would really actually like to you know have a beer with this writer and right, just hear right. him talk about stuff. And I love that when something that you experience artistically connects with you, and then you find out that the person who created it kind of shares you know, or at least makes you think of interesting things that you want to know more about. Uh, I hate to disabuse anyone of the notions that uh, Laird Barron they might have about Laird Barron being a super cool, tough guy. But I once said something about him, and this is kind of funny how Twitter does this. I tweeted something about one of his books. He actually tweeted me back and was like, hey, thanks, that's very cool of you to say. And also just wanted to let you know I really like your reviews. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah, I play RTSs sometimes. I normally try not to because it takes up too much time and I have deadlines. But I just wanted to say I've really appreciated your reviews in the past. And I was like, whoa, Laird Barron is a geek who's played video games. And furthermore, I heard him on a podcast about uh, John Carpenter's The Thing with a couple of guys who just... Unfortunately, they didn't let Laird Barron talk too much, but Barron came across as a really kind of mild-mannered, polite fellow, uh, whereas I was expecting like someone like Liam Neeson who would just run roughshod over these, <laughs> these dorks talking about The Thing. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I'm afraid to say Laird Barron seems like a really nice, mild-mannered fellow which <laughs> kind of messes it up when I'm reading his stories. Uh, you have to lose sight Right, of but it, it, I don't know, though. That actually makes him even more complex because you're, like, wondering, maybe, like, like his computer case is made out of wood that he split, ah, that right. he split himself exactly. or something. You know? <laughs> uh, you mentioned that Ramsey Campbell, you had to move farther down his career to find good stuff. Uh, and one of the things that I talked about this week, uh, Chaosium publishes these collections of stories from various authors centered around one aspect of Lovecraftian mythos. And in one of them, the called the Hastur Cycle, which is stories about Hastur, uh, there's a Ramsey Campbell short story called The Minds of Yuggoth. And the fiction is that Yuggoth is the planet Pluto, and these... Uh, I think they're called, yeah, Migo. These weird creatures live out there, and they entered them in interstellar flight, brings them to Earth, and they kidnap people by putting their brains in jars, whatever. So Ramsey Campbell, early in his career, is like, yeah, I'm going to write a Lovecraftian story. And he writes about someone who finds a portal to Yuggoth and goes to the city where all of these creatures live. And to give you an indication of how I think clumsy Ramsey Campbell is as a writer at that stage in his career, so this guy goes to this alien city, 
Uh, and because it's on another planet where humans couldn't breathe, he posits that when you walk through the interdimensional gate, it changes your organs. So like you can adapt to wherever you are. And it's just so he doesn't have to have the guy wear a space suit or whatever, a space suit. So the guy's walking through the city and it's abandoned and he's like, where is everyone? And he's looking for this particular mine, which is a deep, dark hole where something undescribable lives in the bottom of the hole. And he's in the city and he has to figure out where it is. So he finds in this abandoned city some kind of like headpiece that you put on and it's how you use he discovers that you put it on and it creates a hologram in front of you that gives you messages and he puts it on thinking that it's going to give him some information and it just shows him random stuff and he thinks to himself this is how ramsey campbell writes it the the protagonist thinks to himself while he's wearing this thing he thinks quote well this is a waste of time and then what happens is the picture in front of him shows, no lies, is exactly how he describes it, one of those Migos going to the bathroom. And it shows how waste is handled in this city. And, and Campbell has no sense of this being like ridiculous or funny. And it's because this device plays on the words that you think to give you information. So because the guy thought this is a waste of time, the machine thought he wanted to know about waste products in the city. So then he thinks about, okay, where is the mine? And it shows him where the mine is. But this so idea it's of, like Google in 2001. Exactly. And he accidentally Googles, <laughs> he accidentally Googles uh, like alien shit. Like, a, like, like crap is what he Googles. And I was like, well, if, okay, if that was supposed to be funny maybe, but he has no concept that this is funny. It's just like the word waste of time leads to information about Migos going to the bathroom. I was like, what? That, really? That's the angle you want to take. We're in a specific – like a, a, a supposedly weird, mysterious horror story about an alien planet, and we're talking about them going to the bathroom. <laughs> so fortunately, Ramsey Cam yeah, Campbell grew out of that apparently, and he, uh, he developed some skills later on, right? Yeah, it's. I, I mentioned it in the recommendation, but what's interesting about him to me from a historical standpoint is if you read Lovecraft biographies, uh, Lovecraft had a guy who he corresponded with a lot named August Derleth, who kind of saved, rescued all of Lovecraft's short stories and under his wing. And I think Ramsey Campbell's first Cthulhu stories were published when he was like 14 or 15 years old, ah. which is why, why you know, that story that you just mentioned kind of sounds like something that we came up with in a junior high Call of Cthulhu campaign. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what interested me a lot about, especially the Hastur, I, I guess I'm, Hastur cycle or however you pronounce that, is that here's uh, a mythos that actually predates Lovecraft, which I've never been able to kind of, like, even now, that seems like really cool to me that I guess Robert Chambers came up with the concept of Hustor before Lovecraft ever came along. Yep, and this King in so, Yellow thing, and yeah, Lovecraft was co-opting this. Right, which to me, you know, every time I hear... Like occasionally you'll see in fiction somebody try to maintain that, you know, they'll try to bring up the Cthulhu mythos in outside of the world of Cthulhu, like in an actual world and then present this as something that's really going on. And for me, it's impossible 
to for me to break that sort of whatever that suspension of disbelief because I'm like no 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 it's one guy you know invented all this is a literary setting but then when you've got one that predates that I don't know for some reason the fact that it's got this kind of twisty turny kind of hazy pre-existence before Lovecraft like there should be like they should be using way more Hastur in in horror fiction than they are. Well, that's the cool thing about the the Hastur cycle is you can see the ways different authors since Lovecraft have adapted him, have used him, have written different styles and tones of storytelling about him. It reminds me, uh, Chris, of when when we think of zombies, uh, George Romero, the idea is he kind of invented them, and he, he what he didn't he didn't invent them, but he codified them. Uh, in right. a way that informed how they would be adapted since then. Like there were zombies before as part of Haitian mythology. Uh, the, that, the story, the Matheson story, I Am Legend, they were called vampires, but there was very much this zombie style to them. And Romero came along and took this, I, this word and concept from Haitian mythology. I'm sure he knew of Matheson's I Am Legend, some of this idea of them besieging a house. Uh, and he just set the standard for, okay, I'm pulling these things together, and here's how zombies work. Uh, you know, it's kind of like all zombie mythology flows through him uh, as a nexus and then moves out. And that's kind of, I think, what Lovecraft did with Hastur and the King in Yellow uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, did you see, by the way, uh, you, you watched the first season of True Detective, right? And I had actually – I haven't read it recently, but I had actually read The King in Yellow – years and years ago and i just thought it was cool that they were dropping that reference and i wish that the whole series lived up to what it hinted at you know earlier earlier in the, in that season but yeah and it is it does set up an expectation but i do like this idea that there are many different outlets and many different ways to express and talk about lovecraftian stuff uh and if if nick pizzolato wanted to do that with the king in yellow even though I kind of felt like it was a fake out, you know, more power to him. Uh, adapt right. that stuff however you like. Yeah. So, all right, Hornbossel, what are we going to call next week's recommendations? Because I have no idea. Next week, how would you characterize it, and what should we call it? Well, you called it everything else uh, in our Friday favorites tease to next week. I don't know other media. Does that sound weird? Is that like too antiseptic? Sounds like something you would teach in a college course. The way right, you put it. okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like SEO. <laughs> uh, it is kind of everything else. It's something that's not – because we, we started this out saying, okay, we're not going to recommend movies. We've talked plenty about that. Uh, so here are video games, and we're not going to do the best. We're just going to recommend some weird video games. So we've, we've kind of dismissed movies. We've done video games. We did TV. We did books. And there's some things left over that we want to talk about, and we just shoved those to the last week. And, yeah, they're just miscellaneous or everything else or other media. I'm trying to think. Are some of them even technically media? Yeah, everything's media, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's basically ways to get into that Halloween uh, frame of mind Yeah. before Halloween, so this next, last week before Halloween. We're going to help you make everything else scare again next week, hopefully. <laughs> so uh, join us for that, and then join us at the end of that week for a final wrap-up, uh, and we'll talk to you guys then.